Greetings. How's everybody? Uh, this is not my favorite thing to do. And uh, it's not just because I don't like public speaking, because I could probably talk for a long time on just about any subject. But preaching to you guys is always makes me a little nervous. Uh, in fact, when Stephen asked me to preach, do you, do you still have that slide of Forrest, the prayer card thing? When Stephen asked me to preach, the look on Boston's face <clears throat> it was, was exactly what, what I looked like. <laughs> All right? Uh, although he's much better looking. But the reason... The, the reason that uh, I'm uncomfortable doing this, I'm going to be doing two uncomfortable things this morning. One of them is just speaking to you, is because I know who you are. I know that you are the church and that you are the body of Christ and that uh, you're the reason that Jesus came here. You're the reason why he was born, why he had lived his life, why he suffered, why he died, why he was buried. And you are also the reason why he was raised again from the dead, and you're still the reason why he's sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And so when I have to address you, I want to make sure I give you proper respect, and that I, uh, I realize that in, in some ways I, like I'm on holy ground here. And I hope that each one of you realizes just how much God loves you. All right? So that's why I'm a little nervous. But I'm not just telling you all that in order to butter you up. Uh, I think that that notion of what the church is is a subtext for all of the book of Philippians that we're going to be going through. Uh, I think this is, you know, they talk about Philippians as being the, the book in which Paul is most joyful. You can't open a a, a bit of this book without him talking about rejoicing and being happy and optimistic and all these things. And I think the reason why he feels that way is because of what he sees in the church, in the body of Christ. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's go to the scripture. And today we're looking at Philippians 1, 12 and following, where Paul writes... Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former pre preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice." Have you ever found yourself reading a passage of the Bible and doing like I do way too often, just sort of halfway paying attention, and all of a sudden stop and say, wait a minute, what did I just read? This passage uh, affects me that way. Because I look at it, and Paul is saying that he is in prison, 
And that is somehow advancing the gospel. And so I have to ask myself, is Paul crazy? I don't know about you, but if a guy comes to town and starts telling me how to live a fulfilled life and what the meaning of life is and uh, how to live an empowered life and I find out he's been arrested, I don't think that much, that I don't uh, tend to listen to him that much more. And if I find out that he's been arrested because of what he's been teaching people, well, I consider myself warned. But Paul says it's work to advance his message. And I, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. Let me give you a counterexample. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. Uh, I remember what happened during that week. Palm Sunday happens. Jesus comes riding into town on a donkey. All the people are going, yeah, Jesus, yeah, you're our guy. The king has come. Woohoo!" And then he's arrested. And what happens? Are his... Uh, does his message all of a sudden resonate all the more? After he's arrested on Thursday and Friday, the crowds that were crying out to him and saying, you're the best, are now saying, crucify him. His being arrested did not advance the gospel. And then Paul doubles down on it. He doesn't just say that, it's, it, it's, uh, that, that his arrest and him being in chains is advancing his message, but he's also saying the people who are following me are now much more bold. And they're going out and preaching with courage and conviction. But think again to what happened after Jesus was arrested and his disciples. They weren't bolder. They weren't more courageous. The night that Jesus was arrested, Peter immediately draws a sword, but he's told to stand down. And after that, what does Peter do? He runs. He hides. He does manage to slink along and get into the courtyard of the palace that Jesus was being interrogated in. But when a simple slave girl walks up to him and says, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' guys? Peter says, no, 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 not me. And somebody asks, and somebody again asks, and each time he denies, and the last time he curses them and says, how dare you say that I'm, I'm with that guy? Jesus' arrest did not empower or make Peter courageous. The other disciples didn't do that well either. We do read where at least John was there to witness the crucifixion, but the rest of them seem to have scattered. So what's the difference? Why Paul, when he's arrested, saying it's pushing forward the gospel and making people more courageous, why didn't that happen with Jesus? What's the difference in those two situations? <clears throat> Well, I think the obvious answer for us Christians is Easter. Easter comes, Jesus rises from the dead, and that makes all things new. We can look back and say, we can tell now that what Jesus said was true because of the fact that God stamps his uh, approval on the work of Jesus by raising him from the dead. <clears throat> but did that have the effect on the disciples? We read that Mary goes to the tomb. She sees the risen Lord. Some disciples run to the tomb. They see the empty tomb. They're convinced that something has happened, that Jesus is raised from the dead. And does that make them courageous and bold? We read that later on that week, they're gathered in a room, locked, the windows drawn, afraid of the, afraid of the, uh, the, the religious authorities. 
And then Jesus appears in their midst, and he has a meal with them, and he teaches them, and they, they have fellowship. Right? So, okay, now they have more proof of the risen Lord. Does that empower them? We read the next week, <laughs> they're meeting again behind closed doors for, and, and are fearful. So Easter isn't enough. We need Good Friday. And we definitely need Easter. But we need the third act. We need Pentecost, which we'll be celebrating here in a few weeks. It's only when the Spirit comes and enters into the disciples, when the Spirit of God comes and energizes them, that everybody becomes changed from the inside out. Right? At that point, you have Peter, who was cowering from a little servant girl, standing up in front of a group of people and saying, Jesus came to you. You saw his miracles. You saw his teaching. You know that he was the sent one, and yet you killed him. That's bold. And then uh, we read in Acts 7 where Stephen, in front of them all, recounts the entire history of the Jewish nation, going back to Abraham and talking about Moses and Joseph and all the prophets and the kings. And he lays out to them their history that they're very, very proud of. But he points out to them that all the way through it, the nation of Israel were fighting against God. He says, you killed the prophets. Your parents killed the prophets. Your, your, your parents turned on them, and you're just as bad because when the chosen one shows up, you killed them. That's bold preaching. And I don't think we should necessarily go out there and preach that way all the time, but it, just to show the difference of uh, the boldness and courage of the, the followers of Jesus after Pentecost compared to the way it was before. And this is the second uncomfortable thing I'm doing this morning. Is uh, I'm a good Presbyterian. I'm steeped in the Reformed side of theology, and we don't like to talk about the Spirit that much. I'd much rather talk about what's up here rather than what's in here. And when I talk about faith, I often say things like, well, if we understood this, or if you reason your way down this list, you'll come to the correct conclusions. But the fact of the matter, what makes Christians different is the spirit that lives within us. And that's good news. That turns us from those cowering people into people who are more bold. People who are even willing to do uncomfortable things like stand here and speak in front of you guys who intimidate me. Uh, okay. So what? What does this have to do with the passage? What does this have to do with Philippians? The difference between Paul's experience being arrested and imprisoned and Jesus's is all three acts are involved. And when Paul is in prison, he uh, has proof that the gospel is real, um, that, the, that the gospel is the power of God to save people and to change people. And I think he knows it because of two reasons. One is he feels it in himself. Paul is a globe-trotting uh, evangelist. He likes to move around a lot. He wants to go out there and preach. And here he is, stuck in prison, enchained, and he can't get out there and do what, he's called, what he feels like he's called to do. And yet he's some, somehow okay with it. In a couple chapters he'll talk about the secret of contentment. And somebody much better than I will tell you about that. But Paul's experiencing it, 
But he's also experienced it in a second way. He's experienced it because while he's there, the church in Philippi is sending him people to help him and sending him things to uh, help him survive, food and provisions. And it's a miracle. Philippi is a Greek colony, a Greek town. And uh, Paul had done all of his previous missionary work out in Asia and Asia Minor and received a vision to go to Europe, go to Greece. And Philippi was his first spot. And Philippi was on the Greek, uh, Greek, Greek country, so that was populated by people who were steeped in all that Greek philosophy and worldview and art. The Greeks were like the center of the cultural elite. But it was also populated a lot by uh, Roman citizens, when Rome would go out there and conquer other areas, they'd have a big army, they'd raise an army, they'd go out there, they'd conquer a bunch of land, and all of a sudden they had a bunch of army guys who were used to fighting and taking things, and Rome didn't want them coming back to Italy. <laughs> so they would settle the Atlanta they conquered, cut it up into lots, and give it to the soldiers and say, here, this is your new home. So you have Philippi, which is the center of uh, it, it's settled by the, the, the people who are the political and military power of the time and the, the philosophical cultural power of the time. And Paul shows up, this guy from the eastern backwater, from a Jewish background, from a religion that the Greeks thought was nuts, from a people that the Romans thought were insignificant, and he founds a church. And he founds a church that uh, their only unifying factor is that they are, are, uh, are, are God's people. They are God's, they are like you guys, God's chosen people, the apple of his eye. And that unity that he has with those people in Philippi transcends uh, cultural backgrounds, economic status, different racial divides, different languages. All that stuff washes away, so much so that when they find out that Paul is in prison elsewhere, they send people to go support him. He's been, arrest, he's been arrested by Greeks and Romans, right? And the Greek and Roman church is sending aid to him because they identify now with more with Paul and with Christ than they do with the way they were brought up. So I think what Paul, I think this is the subtext of Philippians. When Paul reflects on what that means, he's convinced that God is working and doing powerful things. He's convinced that what happened on Pentecost wasn't just a one-day event, that it continues on and on and on. Uh, and I think that's why he's joyful. All of a sudden, he knows. And I think that's, that's the, uh, the reason why in our, our text it says that others, when they're preaching out for, for even for bad motives, he's still happy about it. Even when they're preaching to make him look bad, he's okay with it as long as in there somewhere. Christ is being preached. Because even if he is uh, hurt by it, if the church goes forward, he's happy. And I think it's because he knows that uh, you guys, just like the church in Philippi, just like the church that he was trying to plant when he was arrested, are all God's people and that he's going to work wonderfully and, and powerfully in their lives. I think that sometimes, especially Americans, we're far too individualistic that uh, 
we, we think it's just important, what's important is just me and Jesus. And we lose, fact, we lose track of the fact that Jesus saves us in order to bring us into a community. And what we see in the church is the reality of what God is doing in time and in history. He's bringing in his kingdom. This, is, this congregation is a small facet of that. Here in San Diego and in the United States and in the hemisphere and around the world, there are congregations just like this meeting and praising God and sharing their lives together and uh, being the kingdom. Just like it was happening in Philippi 2,000 years ago, around the globe, over millennia. This is proof that God's word is real and powerful and that the work of Christ continues. So I'd encourage you to tie yourself to a body of believers. It could be in your small group, it can be in a congregation, but we see God, we see Christ more in each other sometimes than we do in ourselves. And your guys' stories inspires me and makes me praise God and realize that He is real. And if you want to experience Christ more, you're going to have to do it by going with His people. Sometimes that's tougher than others. All right? But I can give you a couple examples of. Uh, of uh, someone else in the body of Christ going through tough times. And it, it inspires us and, and uh, proves that God is real. There was a woman, Mary, in this congregation, I think probably before we moved over here. But she was a, a widowed lady who moved out to San Diego to be near her daughter, and she was just the prototypical uh, little old lady. Like she wore a bonnet, and she just just a little sweetheart. Uh, you guys know like Looney Tunes, Sylvester the Cat, that little old lady who owns Sylvester the Cat. That's what Mary looked like. And she was just a joy. And she would come to our our small group, our, our life group. And uh, that's when we were living downtown. And at a certain point. Jackie and I moved to what I call Extreme East Village, which is La Mesa. And uh, I would, Mary still wanted to come to our group, so I'd drive into town, pick her up, take her back, and you know, ferry her back and forth on our, on our life group nights. And I got to talk to her quite a bit and hear about her life. And uh, there was one time where I was talking with Jackie, and she says, oh, Mary's so sweet. You could tell that she's just had a great life. And, you know, she never really had to suffer much. And I was able to tell her that when back in the 50s, when Mary had two little kids, her husband died. And Mary had to go out and get a job and try to, as a single parent, raise them. And there was a lot of financial issues, and it was tough, and she'd lost her life mate. And uh, when her son was in his 20s in another state, he got in a horrible traffic accident. And he was in a coma. And for like nine months, she moved to that other state. She lived out of a suitcase. She stayed in the hospital. And I remember her telling me vividly, I remember this, she says, one day the doctor came to her and said, he's not going to make it, you've got to let him go. And she said she got so angry. This little sweet little old lady just got ticked. How dare that man say that to her? 
Her son did not die, but he was disabled for his life and had a tough, tough road to hoe. And her daughter had issues with her marriage and with her, uh, her own health. And there's you know, a lot of stories that Mary would tell me about the tough times that she had been through, and yet she was so sweet. And I remember her telling me that every time she goes into something dark and she finds out that God is there, it makes it easier the next time. Now, I didn't have to go through all the things that Mary did, but I can stand back and through her experience and seeing what God did in her life, it gives me hope and it tells me that, that uh, the God we serve is a reliable and faithful God. Second example is uh, a friend of ours, they, they were out here, they moved to Indiana. When I think about it, Mary it was from Iowa, and these people are in Indiana. I guess the moral of the story is don't move to a state that begins with I. <laughs> but uh, they were out there, they were, the couple was with child, and they were going to move to the West Coast. And when their child was born, they found out that he had Down syndrome. And that was a shock. Now, a very high percentage of kids, like about 50% of kids with Down syndrome, needs open-heart surgery. And their son needed open-heart surgery. That's bad news. But then their son also had hemophilia. So you have a newborn child with a disability requiring open-heart surgery. A newborn child is big, and he has hemophilia. And as I said, they were in the process of moving. They had quit their jobs. They had no health care, no health coverage. All right, should I keep going? <laughs> you know, how much more are we going to pile on this? Over the course of the next six or seven terrifying months, they were able to get help from the state, help from some institutions that would cover the ridiculously high price of the drug they needed for the hemophilia. They got uh, a lot of help to get them through it, but it was terrifying. And I remember when we had our, before we moved to Extreme East Village, we were just in East Village, and they came over, and this woman was telling me the story, telling us the story. And I can remember like it was yesterday, it was sitting around our table, and the ch children are playing around our feet. And the, this, this mother, as she's telling me this horror story, she's glowing. There's a sense of peace and contentment about her. I felt like I was on the Mount of Transfiguration. She just glowed. You felt like you were in the presence of something special. And she said to me, she said, you know, I would not want anything that I've gone through I want not anyone else to ever, ever have to go through it. But she says, I wouldn't trade a minute of it. Because in that dark time, just like what Mary said, God was there. I'd be lying if I said I understood this fully. And I'd be lying if I, if I said, and I don't want anybody to ever think, I would say, oh, I hope a whole bunch of bad things happen to me so I can figure stuff out better. <laughs> but that's one of the great things about the church is that we find courage in each other's stories. Right? Both of these women give me courage, and I'm more convinced 
that whatever I'm asked to go through, I hope it's not that bad, but whatever I'm asked to go through, I know that God will be there. And I don't have to suffer through it personally, right? Because I've got you guys. And you guys don't have to suffer through it personally because you've got us guys. I said the... uh, I don't even know if I said that. This morning I pointed out to the other group, which isn't nearly as good looking as you guys, uh, that I didn't realize what my sermon was about until I looked at what the last song we're going to sing before we walk out of here, which is Let Your Kingdom Come. And I think what, what gives me hope when I hear stories like that, what gave Paul hope when he was in jail, what empowered those people uh, to preach more boldly when, when Paul was in jail is the fact that in the church we see the miracle of what Christ came to do. He came to create a new kingdom. He came to create a new community. And the fact that we're here 2,000 years later experiencing the same thing that they did 2,000 years ago is powerful proof that the gospel is the power of God to, for salvation. There's a lot of people here going through dark times. Personal health issues, children's health issues, strained marriages, snap marriages, uh, job uncertainty. But I'm convinced that God's going to get you through it. It's not going to end up the way you want it necessarily, or that you think you want it, but he'll be there. And I think you're going to experience God in your life a lot more if you can tie yourself to a group of believers you're going to see God more and more that way than you will by yourself. Okay? All right. This morning, after everybody was nice and listened to me, I rewarded them by telling them a joke. (laughs) Now, I I want to warn you that this joke doesn't have a point. Okay? I'm not going to try to sneak in a little last minute, meaningful moment. This is just a joke, okay? And it's not even that funny. All right, there was a guy who really wanted to become an actor, but he had this terrible problem. He couldn't remember his lines. So finally, he says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And they said, you only have one line. You're going to open up the whole play, and all you have to do is say, Hark, I hear the cannon. Right? So the guy for weeks is practicing this. They're going through rehearsal. Hark, I hear the cannon. It's the first line of the whole play. He doesn't have to try to remember it while it's going on. He just has to remember that one line. So if he practices and he's got it down, he's got it. First night, you have to play. The curtain goes up. The crowd is there. The stage cannon goes off. And the guy says, what the heck was that? All right. I, I only tell you that joke because I think it's kind of funny and I love you all. <clears throat> uh, and I want to you know, truly encourage you to, 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 to sink your roots in this community. Christ identified with the church. I believe that the church is the point of all history. If you want a meaningful life and a full life and a lot of people to help you, dig into the church. Find a, find a life group do all that kind of stuff. That's all I got. 
Okay? 